Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 15, The Hand That Rocks, The Cradle That Burns. I'm Scatty, we have with us Brooke and Matt. Hello. Hi. Wow. And <laughs> this week we'll be bringing you four chapters, count them, one, two, three, four, the last four chapters of Game of Thrones. Exciting. It's a nice uh, final episode here, uh, going through the last four chapters. That'll be Tyrion 9, John 9, Catelyn 11, and Danny 10. That's chapter 6. We made it to the end. What's that? I said we made it to the end. We Sorry made it for to cutting the end. Assuming, assuming we lived through this podcast. That's uh, chapter 69 to 72, according to Wikivice and Fire. Quick reminder, as we always do, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for a special segment we call Davos After Dark, or DAD for short. Don't worry, we'll warn you, it's coming uh, with a nice little musical jingle that Matt has authored himself. Matt has authored all the little jingles you hear uh, that we've all come to know and love. Uh, a couple notes uh, of business uh, for the upcoming podcasts. Uh, you guys have probably gotten used to the every two weeks uh, we bring out uh, a new analysis of five chapters and uh, probably hoping we would move right into A Clash of Kings. But we're, uh, we're trying something a little bit different. So in, we're, we're going to uh, put our nose to the grindstone here. And in two weeks, uh, on March 2nd, we'll be releasing twin episodes. They're not really twins. They're only twins in the sense that there will be two of them. They're very different. They'll be arriving at the same time. <laughs> They'll be arriving at roughly the same time. Bouncing uh, baby podcasts. <laughs> baby podcasts. The first is a dad spectacular. That's Davos After Dark. It'll be 60 minutes of Davos After Dark. Uh, the fingers will pick some topics to cover, research them a little bit. We'll nerd out just as usual, commenting, talking through it, giving our opinions. But if you don't like spoilers, don't listen to that episode. The whole episode will be chock full of them, so you'll want to avoid that. So that's twin number one. We'll call him Luke. Twin number two, the second, character arc analysis. So uh, we're going to go through and uh, kind of do a where are they now type of character analysis of every POV character in Game of Thrones. Kind of start with where they started in the books, talk a little bit about their journey and where they ended up at the end, and uh, we're going to integrate a little bit of trivia in there too, challenging each other to answer some trivia questions. So hopefully it'll be a fun format. So those will, all bo- those will both release on the same day, March 2nd, no rest for the wicked, and we're plenty wicked. Uh, we're going to dive right into A Clash of Kings after that. Format everyone knows and loves is back. That will deliver on March 16th with the first five chapters of A Clash of Kings. We didn't want to slow the train down for too long, but uh, we thought it would be nice to pause at the end of the first book, try a little something new, and uh, do a little reflection and playtime. So look forward to that, hopefully. Uh, if not, forgive us for the, the two-week <laughs> diversion. Uh, diversion were taken, but uh, we'll uh, we'll see you guys back on the regular schedule on March, 16th, March 16th. I feel like it'll be worth it when I totally school both your asses in trivia. Oh, it's going to be sweet. Yeah, especially oh on those gosh. questions about how high you can get in British Columbia. Those things are going <laughs> to get totally schooled on. Hey! Nice nice callback to last episode, Scad. That's good. <laughs> I do what I can. <clears throat> I just wanted to beat bring the up... crap out of both of you. <laughs> <laughs> I must break you. Uh, these <laughs> threats are weak. Uh, I just want to let our listeners know that you are now listening to the 24th recorded hour of Davos Fingers. Congratulations, you made it through an oh enormous gosh. book, Game of Thrones. How many pages is it? Uh, this particular version, almost 800 pages, a little over 800 pages. Well done. And you listen to our voices so, for over us, 24 uh, hours. Yeah. <laughs> You'll never get those 24 hours back. You'll never get them back, and that is 
or you deserve a medal. Yeah, basically just nattering about the scribblings of the madman. That's right. Now, what you don't know is that the three of us have actually been recording this for 24 straight hours. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. (laughs) The jig is up. (laughs) By the time you're hearing this, it's it's much later. But we actually recorded this in one 24-hour session. So we're all getting a little tired right now. So, uh... If if in this case, if you want to contact us, suggest topics for our trivia meltdown, uh, or uh, or topics for our uh, our Davos after dark uh, episode, um, reach out to us. Give us suggestions. We can uh, we can maybe consider them uh, something we might want to talk about. So uh, that's all the all the usual suspects there. Uh, DavosFingers.com, uh, email at wearedavosfingers at gmail.com, Twitter at davosfingers, or uh, on the Facebooks. Uh, there you can find us and, and uh, shoot us some messages. So look forward to hearing from you if you got ideas for these uh, these two special episodes that are coming on March 2nd. So without further ado, I think we'll jump right into Tyrion 9. Brooke, I think that's you. It is. Cripples and bastards and broken things, but the power of the mind can give you wings. Drinking and japing and yeah, ladies. Tyrion, Lannister, or Imp, if you please. Um, This chapter... Oh man. So I don't think I have like the power to sway our fellow readers' opinions. So I'll just say this chapter was like a nuclear level yawn. I love George because we get to like viscerally live and die through and with his characters. So when the necessity arises to expound on a battle through third person, even Tyrion's histrionics and Tywin's diva act are not enough to save it. It was brutal. Um, Rock. <laughs> it was so. I'm allowed to have a negative opinion, okay? How dare you criticize yeah. Martin? How dare you? Anyways, uh, I digress. Wait, no, wait. I want to digress a little more. Also, Tywin and Tyrion being so close in conversation and their names being printed so many times. Tyrion's name start looks starts looking like Tywin. Tywin starts looking like Tyrion. Does that happen to anyone else? <laughs> I think that's a literary device. He's Is using. it? It's a literary device he's using. He's using it to confuse us, to to lure us in for us to see similarities between the two characters. Yeah. So you got I'm confused when he's like, but I think it's, it's <laughs> it like just means Tyrion. I have, to, I have to go back and read every sentence. Like for example, I thought that. Tywin was the one who threw the wine, and I was like, whoa, there. Settle down, Bessie. But no, it was Tyrion. You were confused when Tyrion said, they have my son? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They have my son! Okay. So, uh, I'll get to the chapter summary here. So, here's the deal. When Tywin learned that Rob had split his forces, Tywin had whipped his own army down to River Run to try and get there before Rob, but no dice. Rob beats him there. They find this out at the Crossroads Inn. That's right, yeah. we're back at the Crossroads. Cue the B and T. We all want that song tattooed on our souls. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's the stuff. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, Rob has taken Jamie by surprise. Jamie himself lured from the siege by a raiding force led by Mark Piper, which, as our listeners will remember, was the Blackfish's idea, and it worked like a charm. So without Jamie, 
One of the next guys in charge, Lord Brax, fudged things up by putting rafts of Lannister men clad in heavy armor in the way of River Run's catapults, drowning most of those men. Add to that another lieutenant slash captain, if you will, Sir Forley Prester. Pardon me, almost gets away in retreat with 2,000 men. But then the Taioshi mercenaries that they'd hired switched sides and presumably chopped up the Lannister men they just turned against. We actually don't get a, a clear, clear explanation on what happened to those guys. So on top of this fuckery, the Great John and Lord Blackwood managed to rescue Edmure Tully and the rest of the prisoners that the Lannisters were holding as leverage. So like, well done, Rob. He, you've saved River Run. You've cut off the supply lines to Tywin's army. You put yourself in geographic position to attack Casterly Rock if it came to it. And you captured Jamie Lannister. So Tywin's uh, lords and sirs and captains offer up suggestions of pieces and truces and trades. But Tywin, uh, I believe distraught by the news of Jamie, orders everyone out um, of the inn's great room where they're all meeting. Except for his brother Kevin and Tyrion. So Tyrion is surprised and suspicious as to why Tywin would honor him with a private council, even more so when Tywin gives Tyrion Tywin's wine, Tyrion having smashed his own wine when um, Sir uh, Marbrand had suggested a peace be negotiated between the Starks and the Crown, which is a move I pull often, smashing my wine glass to make a point, no. uh, to get my way. Um to uh, liven up work events. I need attention on me constantly, basically. (laughs) Anyways, uh, when he has them alone, Tywin confesses that the shit creek they are up is thicker and shittier than anyone knows. Cersei has ordered Tywin and his army back to King's Landing to defend it against King Renly Baratheon. Who? That's right. Yeah, I know. Stylish Renly, Robert's younger brother has crowned himself a king and married Marjorie Tyrrell, the daughter of the Lord of Highgarden. Also, we learn that Cersei hasn't told Joffrey about this, scared that Joffrey will take the city watch and march on Renly, leaving King's Landing vulnerable to attack by Stannis Baratheon, who varies reports is building an army and a fleet. So Tywin is not in a great place. Rob, great place. Tywin, shitty place. Tywin decides to confront Rob in battle at a place called Harrenhal, and also in a bold and unexpected move to send Tyrion to King's Landing to act as Hand of the King and shape up Joffrey. Tywin is incensed that Joff is so out of control and blames the council, whom he calls Jackanapes, which (laughs) is delightful. Just a bunch of Jackanapes. (laughs) Just a a bunch of Jackanapes! (laughs) That's exactly how I'm picturing it. It's perfect. So uh, Tyrion's reaction to this is mixed. On one hand, he's pretty chuffed that his father has chosen him to go down and and clean house down in King's Landing. On the other hand, he suspects that perhaps this is is the Green Fork battle all over again, where uh, Tywin strategically orders Tyrion to hold the left in order to get slaughtered and anyways. Um, so he's, he's quite suspicious. Tyrion then asks why Tywin is sending Tyrion and not a more experienced man. And Tywin says it's because Tyrion 
is his son. This tells Tyrion that Tywin has given Jaime up for dead. Before Tyrion leaves, Tywin sort of like offhandedly tells him not to take that whore with him, meaning Shay. Tyrion, in an act of defiance, goes straight to Shay, gives her a sleepy little fondle, and tells her that she's going to King's Landing. And that's the end. Nobody puts my <laughs> shuddy in the corner. <laughs> that's right. Tyrion need his shuddy. So um, Tyrion thinks that Tywin is sending him to King's Landing because Tywin has no choice because Tyrion is now his only son in Tywin's mind. But I honestly believe that Tywin, despite his like personal prejudices against Tyrion's dwarfism and Tyrion's attitude, believes that Tyrion has the skills and ability to put Joffrey and the council back in line. More than that, I believe that Tywin is super aware of Tyrion's subconscious need to like impress Tywin and, and, and get his attention. And Tywin is using that. What do you guys think? I totally agree. I think Tywin's a master at reading people and picking up and uh, keying in on their strengths. And although he doesn't, you know, he's a little bit embarrassed by Tyrion and, and detests him, frankly, uh, at the same time, he begrudges him his his talents that he does have. I wonder how much of the remember that one scene at the very beginning of the book where we're just like cheering as Tyrion slapping Joffrey around at Winterfell. <laughs> I do remember. Remember that? I remember. I wonder how how much of that uh, you know happened outside of that scene before too, and maybe if Tywin was privy to some of those moments of Tyrion putting Joffrey in his place and. <laughs> Oh, Are point. you theorizing that he's sending that Tyrion to King's Landing specifically to slap Joffrey around? To spank Joffrey. <laughs> Someone needs to. Just walk into the Great Hall hand first. Look <laughs> <laughs> at him. Hand first? I see what you did there. Oh! I Hey-o. did not mean to do that. Pun not <gasps> Brooke just punned. Oh, Pin the blue ribbon upon her chest. We're going to have to edit this out, but I got to go take a quick shower. <laughs> Edit it out. So, so Tyrion headed to King's Landing as the new hand, and he rocks. That's the title of the episode. But he's taking Shay with him against the advice of Tywin. Do you think this is just a big middle finger to Tywin taking her, or do you think he's really sweet on her and thinks he's got something something good going? He's... Can it be both? Yeah, it could be both. It's kind of like it's kind of like you get a new job and you to gotta you gotta move off. for it, right? And you gotta leave yeah. some things behind, like your friends and stuff. It's like you you're like, okay, I guess it's a good job. I gotta take it. I gotta leave them behind. And in this case, he's like, nope, I'm not gonna give that up too. Yeah, I don't know if he's in love with uh, Shay per se, but he's kind of in. You know, this is working out pretty well for me. Yeah, yeah I, I like this. Love. I said sweet on her, but I yeah, like I, this whole shuddy thing going on. I yeah. I don't think I will give her up, Dad. Yeah. I think she's coming with me. I think he's underestimating Tywin's like seriousness about this role, <laughs> the hand of the king. Mm-hmm. And Tywin like wants him to go down fully focused, not distracted and and you know sullying the Lannister name by <clears throat> dragging his shuddy with him. And Tyrion's like, "Ah, it doesn't really matter. I'm just I'm just going to go down and slap around my uh nephew." So Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course I can bring whoever I want. So he's totally dismissing Tywin's. He's separating his work from his personal life. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> so 
there's a there's a few things uh, there's a few things that that come up geographically that I wanted to touch on just for the reader real quick. Sakansus Mapas for Heron Hall. Uh, we've heard the name Heron Hall before, uh, but we've never really talked about where it is. It's kind of right to the left of the King's Road, right above the big, huge lake called the God's Eye, which is kind of right around King's Landing. So you can find that there. It's pretty close to River Run and pretty close to King's Landing. And uh, that is where Tywin is taking his army to kind of sit tight and kind of wait a few things out and uh, kind of wait for what he assumes will be Rob's army coming to mess with him there. It's a nigh-impregnable castle, um, very difficult to take. But it's the biggest a, castle in all of Westeros, it is, Yeah, too. it is the biggest castle in all of Westeros. It took 40 years to build or something like that. Yeah, although that's been disputed. Uh, some people are saying Cashley Rock maybe is bigger, but anyway. Are we, are we are we allowed to talk about it? Like, like its features and stuff? Sure. About Harrenhal? Yeah. yeah. I find it fascinating Definitely. because the towers have been half-melted <laughs> or mostly melted by dragon fire. So it's yeah. described as looking like like a like a craggy hand reaching up to the sky and all the towers um you know half 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 proper rock towers half melted stone right the builder of it heron uh claimed that the castle was impregnable and no one could ever take it and right about this time Aegon the conqueror said "Uh, uh, uh-uh i got dragons and uh toasted them all out so Specifically one yep. dragon, Balerion the Black Dread. He flew straight up into the sky, out of the range of all their archers, and then straight back down and roasted them all, as, as Matt said. Yeah, that's uh, that's all information yeah, yeah. from the uh, great book, uh, World of Ice and Fire, which uh, oh, yeah. is awesome if you guys want to check it out. It is great. Yeah, it's sort of like, it evokes to me, like it might look like the Sagrada Familia in Spain, like that big, huge, Ooh. natural-looking church. Yeah. Except cursed. Except yeah. first. Uh, yeah. So, <coughs> so wanted to talk a little bit about River Run too. Um, River Run is pretty badass. The, it's it's kind of hard in this chapter. I, I agree with what Brooke was saying about the narration and, and how it's described. It's not it's not the best the best that he does, I think. But uh, it it basically sits right where two rivers join, right? Two rivers that are pretty fast moving uh, rivers and big. And when battles come. They open the channel up on the third side that's not surrounded by a river, and they make they make a big moat basically. So they're completely yeah. surrounded by water, and there is a great it's basically like a triangle shape, yeah, right? like a triangle, kind of like shape. on a triangular island almost when they open mm-hmm. up this exactly. Moat. And very sheer, straight up. Well, you know, if you get to the other side, it's like straight up as a wall for the castle, right? Very sheer. Mm-hmm. So, um, Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire uh, directed us to a. A great uh, little map that kind of illustrates this. We'll we'll post that up later so you guys can find it on the Twitter and the Facebook and stuff. But there are this is not uh, this is not any sort of totally unique concept. There are other they're called lake castles uh, or water castles. There are several of them around. Uh, I did a little research, Professor Scott kicking in, and I found a pretty cool one called Kenilworth Castle, and it's uh, I think not as cool as River Run, and this is why Kenilworth is surrounded by basically by some man-made lakes and a moat. But the cool thing about River Run is that they're it's surrounded by these rivers that are very fast moving. And that's it's kind of an additional additional difficulty to deal with. But uh, Kenilworth was the site of one of the biggest sieges in 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 England. Uh, lasted for six months against the people that were besieging it before before giving in. But mm. uh, 
anyway, uh, just wanted to point it out. Kenilworth, uh, check it out. It's pretty cool looking. You can see pictures of what it looks like, and uh, it's kind of like picturing River Run, but uh, I don't think it's as cool. And uh, yeah, so just wanted to share that. Fascinating. Thank you, Professor Scott. Indeed. Thank you, so, teacher. I- I, I so I agree with the, the pacing of this chapter. It's a little rough. Uh, I, I did get some humor out of the little the little toadies of Tywin trying to give all these suggestions. Let's get peace. Maybe they'll trade them for lesser. You know, like all these options that are just no good. Yeah, and Tyrion um, even remarks that he admires and tries to emulate Tywin's um, methods of handling his captains and yes. that Tywin just kind of like sits back and lets everyone talk, takes it yeah. all in. Yeah. And, and that to me is the showpiece of this chapter. While Mo- while, while the description of what's happening is kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's good, uh, background to have. The real gem of this chapter is, is the Tyrion Tywin dynamic, which you kind of referenced. And it's kind of like a yo-yo to me. The, the reward versus insults that are kind of going back and forth through this whole chapter. What do you guys think? About um, that? We talked a little bit about, about Tywin before on that. Is, is he just trying to manipulate him with all these compliments? I don't, I don't think he is at this point. I, I get the impression that Tywin's kind of focused on one thing right now, which is Jamie. Um, mm. Cause he keeps coming back to it. Right. They have my son. They have, how many times does he say that in the chapter? Handful of times. And I don't think, I think, you know, manipulating Tyrion seems to be the farthest thing from his mind. I think right now he's just trying to get himself out of this mess. Uh, like I mentioned before, he kind of has a begrudging respect for Tyrion. And so, you know, while he's going to put Tyrion in situations that he thinks Tyrion can succeed in, uh, that are complimentary to Tyrion. At the same time, he doesn't really like the guy, so he's still going to take the time to send him those biting one-liners that he's so good at. So, Yeah. <laughs> uh, making fun of how Tyrion married a whore when he was younger. Yes, that was so great. <laughs> that didn't really do much for uh, Tyrion's self-esteem at that point. Yeah. It's almost but like then... those uh, truces that you make with somebody for a common goal but you can't help but just also throw in the, the little barbs of hatred that you have for them also. You're like, exactly. Okay, I got to work with he, you, but I'm still going to throw yeah. this in there. He recognizes the need to work with him to, you know, hopefully dig themselves out of this hole. But at the same time, he's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Mean he has uh, to like him. Per- perfect. Very lighthearted example. The Hulk in Avengers working side by side with Thor and then just out of nowhere punching him. Right, <laughs> just like all right, we're working together, and I'm controlling this, but I'm gonna punch you now. Yeah, right. It was an excellent scene. It's also a little. It's always more personal with family, right? That's why. Yeah. Why fighting with family is so exquisitely painful is because they they know it's your exhausting. vulnerabilities and they they know what little, even though overall. At the end of the day, they love you and support you and care about you. <laughs> At that moment in time, in the heat of the argument, they know exactly what's going to hurt. Yes. So I feel oh, and that's like... part of it, too, is they know they can push any button they want because you're still going to love them because <laughs> you're family. That, too. Yeah. True, right? And and maybe love isn't the balance beam between the Lannisters. Maybe it's just... Lannister pride, but whatever yeah. the case, Tywin still has that over Tyrion. 
And so they can, uh, Tyrion can disobey and, and, and be Jack Napier, <laughs> Jack and Napier. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And, and, and yeah, like, like make little quips, like <laughs> at least the Targaryens are t- <laughs> trying to take the Riverlands whatever he said <laughs> which oh God. probably would have like really pissed off tywin at that point in time yeah. and you know taking shade to king's landing even though tywin expressly forbade forbade it he knows that this stuff will piss tywin off a little bit but won't put a sword in their mutual cause Indeed. it's a very teenage thing of T- Tyrion to do i like it mm-hmm. i like it mm-hmm. yeah but it's it's also a very dickish parent parental thing to oh absolutely control of you don't control who i take with me get out of here like that's that's a very i'm still your parents and i control you kind of a thing to do too yeah Yeah. he masks it he masks it by saying you know like i'm just trying to protect the family name but in all reality he wants to make sure Tyrion knows that hey i'm giving you this big responsibility as being hand of the king and everything but I'm still dad and I still could tell you what you will and won't do. And you're not going to take your shuddy to King's Landing. That's what Tywin uses as his excuse for everything. It really is. I'm yeah. just trying to protect it's, the family name. I, it's part just of everything. It's part I of Ty winning. Yeah. Part of his Ty winning. Yeah. It's part of Ty winning. All right. Yeah, I'm going to probably yeah. move on to John unless you guys have something critical. I do find it amazing that Rob's still alive. Leading from the front like he is. Yeah. Damn, Rob. Like, like, yeah, guys, you know, they usually, um, you know, get their feet wet in battle by fighting a few first. Rob had never fought in a battle before these, before riding south. And not only is he fighting battles now, but he's doing it the, at the front of his army, you know, out there as the leader who everyone's going to be gunning for. And yet he still hasn't been cut down yet. I find that fascinating. I, I will say three things about that. One, okay, first of all, grudge, grudging uh, agreement, agreement. Uh, but he's had the element of surprise both times. He has an honor guard, basically, that gets cut down instead of him, <laughs> if, if anyone gets close. And he's got a huge fucking wolf taking care of him also. So, I don't think Two it's... Two of those things I was going to say. Yeah, oh, sorry. But I still was surprised. No, I, you did it. It's great. As long as it gets brought up, I don't care who does bring it up. <laughs> I think the Honor Guard and, and Grey Wind have a big part in yeah. his survival to this point. All right, move on. Uh, oh, old Jon Snow. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold and the icicles bloom like the bluest rose. We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. Tune, uh, turn up the dashboard confessional again on this kid. <laughs> As for now, we're gonna hear the saddest songs and sit alone and wonder. So, reeling at the knowledge that is uh that his dad is dead and his brother has gone south to avenge him john is bent on deserting the night's watch and joining rob sam you know ever loyal as cute little sam is is there to attempt to persuade him otherwise um and sam even risks becoming a big old pancake under the charge of john steed 
as he gallops away from uh, Castle Black with Ghost hot on his heels. So he leaves Sam in the dust and John ditches Castle Black in the middle of the night. And although he's kind of trying to put as much physical distance between himself and Castle Black as he can before daylight and people realize he's gone, John's thoughts soon return to Castle Black and to everyone he's leaving behind. Kind of at the forefront of his mind is Commander Mormont, who we know had demonstrated an awful lot of trust in John by gifting him Longclaw. Um, and John was kind enough to leave that behind, uh, recognizing that it's the second time that Jor has gifted his family sword to someone uh, he, he cared about, and then that person let him down. Um, and in the midst of kind of thoughts, he's also thinking of Winterfell and the family he's now bent on joining. Uh, and in the midst of these thoughts, he can't help but kind of feel like no matter what he chooses, he's betraying somebody. If he stays at Castle Black, he's betraying his family, the Starks. And if he leaves, of course, he's betraying the Night's Watch. Uh, he kind of attempts to soothe his troubled thoughts by singing some Dave Matthews band. No, that's only me who does that. <laughs> um, he starts thinking about how happy Rob's going to be to see him. Oh, my bro, Rob, he's going to be so, oh, wait. He can't even imagine Rob being happy. He can't even imagine Rob smiling when he sees him. Um, and then John thinks about the way his father dealt with Night's Watch deserters, of course, which was chopping heads off, something that Rob and John had been witness to on more than a couple of occasions. And then John realizes that as a deserter of the Night's Watch, whether Rob accepts him or not, he's going to have to kind of live a life of anonymity and in the shadows. So I think it's important to note that at this point, Ghost kind of leaves John, uh, presumably to hunt. And about this time, John passes by Molestown, a new little place that I think has been mentioned already, but uh, perhaps not in this detail. Known for its maze of underground dwellings, most of the city is actually underground, or maybe we just call it a, a little town or village, not much of a city. It's Over kind of Hamlet. the closest one to Hamlet. Hamlet! That's yes. an itty-bitty pig, right? <laughs> little town of one. The Black Brothers sometimes found themselves at Mole's Town mining for buried treasure or uh, enlisting the uh, services of the prostitutes who work there. Anyways, a fun little place. You know, it's like going to Disneyland. You go to Molestown. Uh, stepping off the road to kind of rest his horse and grab a bite to eat and wait for ghosts to get back, John hears the approach of riders from the north. And soon he makes out the voices of his pals, uh, Pip, Gren, Toad, Halder, and others. And in an act that John considers a light amount of betrayal, Ghost emerges, runs out in front of him, giving away John's position. And uh, so John comes out too and confronts him and says, I'm leaving. I'm like, no, you're not. And after some convincing and even doing some synchronized reciting of their vows in something that struck me as both kind of cheesy and heartwarming, uh, kind of like a Hallmark movie. The friends convince John to return to Castle Black with them, although John, for his part, fully intends on running away again as soon as he gets the chance. 
So returning at the break of day, they don't even have any time to go to sleep. John immediately goes to the kitchens and grabs Commander Mormont's breakfast and takes it up to him. There, Commander Mormont reveals that he knew John had left and that it was honor that had brought him back. Although whether it was John's honor or his friend's, uh, we'll leave that to be seen. Mormont proceeds to point out how really useless and worthless it would be for John to join his brother, asking, what could you do? John or Rob already commands a huge host of men who are far more qualified probably to fight in a war than you are. What really could you offer? On the other hand, we up here at the wall have a very dwindling small force. Our castles are uninhabited, save for three of them. Uh, We have undead walking around beyond the wall, and wildling forces are apparently massing under the leadership of Mance Raider. So, kind of makes whoever's sitting the Iron Throne seem a little insignificant, right? Mormont further claims he has a feeling that John, with the blood of the first men flowing through his veins as a Stark, has a purpose to play in this coming conflict beyond the wall. And he reveals to him that he, Commander Mormont, intends to lead a force beyond the wall to discover what happened to Benjen and learn more about what's going on out there with Mance Raider and the the undead who are out there walking. And uh, so the Night's Watch is going on a bit of the offensive. <clears throat> John, at this point, makes the decision to fully commit himself to the Night's Watch. Uh, he kind of says a silent goodbye to the Starks and commits to uh, following Mormont, uh, keeping his vows in the Night's Watch, and uh, going beyond the wall and wherever else duty might take him. And I said duty on purpose that time. Suckers. <laughs> End of Thanks. chapter. Yeah. Our listeners are the true suckers. They just keep listening to this crap. <laughs> I, I went for a few episodes trying not to say it anymore. I was really self-conscious about it. But now I'm just embracing it. That last revelation of uh, that they're that they're actually going beyond the wall was so scary to me. And maybe it's because I remembered the prologue of, of the story uh, clear back at the beginning of, you know, Waymar Royce and stuff. But I was so scared about the Night's Watch going beyond oh. the walls. Like, you're all going to die. I didn't even think about that. It is a connection back to the prologue. Yeah. Oh, good point. Absolutely. I, I remember. And, and, and Mormont, too. That whole few paragraph bit where he's talking about the squabbles of the Iron Throne and all that stuff. I mean, you got to remember as a reader, especially the first time, what you're getting is chapter after chapter after chapter of Riverlands and King's Landing and all this stuff with every once in a while a John chapter thrown in, right? Well, mm-hmm. the prologue tells us this shit is coming way up here and it's important, right? Mm-hmm. And this is Mormont doing exactly, Brooke, what you're saying. Like, remember what happened at the beginning of this book, right? There's yeah. something going on in, up here that's really important. And reader, Look down hey. at your maimed and burned hand. Yeah. Shit has yeah. gotten real. Yeah. Yeah, and it's almost like we get so caught up in the politics of this story 
of King's Landing and River and the stuff you said, Scott, that we forget that there's something really bad happening. And we started out the story that way. Uh, and, and this kind of brings us back to it. I remembered that the one good line from all of Armageddon, the one thing that stuck with me from that movie is where Owen Wilson's about to go up into space. And he's like, I'm like, I'm like 98% excited and like 2% scared. Or, or maybe it's the other way around. And, and that's, that's what's so awesome is I don't know. <laughs> you doing, Oscar? Great. I've got that excited, scared feeling. Like 98% excited, 2% scared. Maybe it's more. It could be, two, it could be 98% scared, 2% excited, but that's what makes it so intense. Is it's so confused. I can't really figure it out. Will you make mine really tight because I don't want to fall out? I can't do Owen Wilson impressions very well pretty close my orlando bloom impressions are much better <laughs> anyways someday i'll um, give you guys my keanu reeves impression but the best part of armageddon is clearly ben affleck oh okay oh, i'll give you that how about yeah. his, or just the, what, the how about his english chemistry. accent while he's riding the uh, animal crackers up uh, up the stomach into the lush mountains oh, yeah. of uh live tyler's uh cleavage so performance for the ages yeah, that, I was, that's what I was going to say. Is that's like the chemistry between those two is just remarkable. It's not as good as it was in Jersey Girl. No, I was but. actually just like super distracted because in his like earlier movies when he was an unknown and like um, Mallrats and uh, Dazed and Confused, he had his real teeth, and then he got veneers for Armageddon, so I can stop staring at his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> of like, course, uh, I never, like, didn't even notice. That. There's something about Mary. The, the guy gets the caps on his teeth. Mm-hmm. Okay, just take a look, okay? Watch Mallrats, as I'm sure you know your weekly viewing will allow you. <laughs> and then watch Armageddon. You'll be like, Jesus, they're can openers. <laughs> this guy works on an oil rig. There's no way his teeth can be that good. Yeah, oh, exactly. Working on an oil rig just sounds really, really uncomfortable. Uh, like the back of a Volkswagen. That some sort of some all rats reference. Okay, okay, <laughs> catch it. Hey, see, Bruce, I like to pick up girls on the rebound. Disappointing relationship. They're, they're more vulnerable, they're much more in need of solace, and they're uh, fairly open to suggestion. And I use that to fuck them someplace fairly uncomfortable. Well, like the back of a Volkswagen. No. All right. Uh, I'm laughing silently. Wow, we, um, we went way off on a tangent there. Yeah, but one thing I wanted to talk about with this chapter was this John's emotions, you know, if this whole kind of theme of I'm doing the right thing or so he tries to convince himself. So why do I feel so bad? I agree with you. I I feel like a lot of this guilt is he questions it briefly. But what would Rob do once John actually reached him? Mm -hmm. I I feel strongly that that Rob would uh, not be conflicted for long. Like he would, he would probably uh, punish In John. What, like I was gonna say, which way do you think he'd go? Yeah, I think I think. Well, considering that by the time John reached Rob, Rob is de facto in charge of the North. I won't spoil, mm-hmm. but we are covering in this episode, and we'll have to set an example and 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 maintain his leadership through, you know, carrying out justice. So. Yeah, I think I think John was nervous about that because he knows Rob and knows that that Rob is an honorable guy and the son of Eddard Stark. And yeah, it would not have ended well. 
And he considers that question of what would Eddard have done if Benjen had deserted? Mm -hmm. It's a great, it's, it's, it's just a great little avenue he takes us through in his thoughts. I I love that part of the chapter, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's all, it's all conjecture, right? I mean, it probably depends on how it happens. Does he come up on him in the middle of the night when he's alone and he can just send him away? Does it happen in front of all of his bannermen and he's got to make a point? What happens? I would tend to think that Rob would spare his life if he could, but he's not going to let him stick around. No. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, Why don't it's, I it's uh, enlist you in the army? He's, you Go know what, you know what he's, do you know what John's doing is he's doing exactly what Arya would not let herself do when she was trying to sneak across the Bailey, when the, the ta- when the tower of the hand was being taken, she, he's, he's letting his heart mislead him into a fantasy land that he wants to be true. Ari mm-hmm. would not let that happen, right? She saw yeah, the truth of the knows it's what not. it was. Yeah. And John's not doing yep. that here. And maybe he just needed a midnight ride to uh, to try to clear those senses, right? But he's not being honest. He's not being honest with himself. Yeah, very good comparison. He he should have just you know if he would have just put on a long December on his iPod as he was riding down south, he would have felt better and gone back on his own. I think, but he didn't. <laughs> Uh, but that's I think that's a very human emotion. I think we do that all the time. And I love that George wrote that into John's uh, POV here, that you feel like you're doing the right thing. Why do you feel so bad? Well, maybe you're not doing the right thing. <clears throat> yeah, your, your gut, your gut is an amazing indicator of what's really right and wrong. You know, like your heart can want things. Your head can tell you something is the right thing to do. If you feel sick in your stomach, <laughs> it ain't right. Great point. What do you think of Ghost giving up old John boy? I love it. I love it. Well, Ghost knew what he was doing the whole time. Yeah. Ghost knew exactly what he was doing the whole time. Yeah, he hangs back and waits, makes sure that everybody else is coming, catch him, jumps out, gives uh-huh. him away. The wolves protect their owners, and Ghost knows that John needs to be at the wall somehow, right? That, yeah, that there's, even a, there's even an actual text that says that, what was it that... Ghost looked at him knowingly or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how much... I really wish he'd explore that more because I wonder how much is John like with my animals. I give them way too much credit for intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> and and how much was actually Ghost's wisdom. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Brooke, the snakes I'm, know I'm what's gonna break going it on, to you. I think I think you probably do give them too much credit for wisdom, but the wolves <laughs> maybe are smart. Yeah, well, see, I just wish that that maybe George had described a previous occasion where Ghost had oh, yeah. you know, led John correctly, like just like to have some testimony to back it up, because right now it just sounds like a loving pet owner. Yeah, <laughs> Give, giving giving their oh, pet. Oh, Ghost! Yeah. It was a knowing <laughs> yeah. look. What do you mean, you <laughs> little turd? Behind you. Yeah, like owls aren't actually wise; they just look wise. <laughs> <laughs> well, ghost, ghost did uh, warn him about the white, right? Yeah, true. But I mean, he would have warned John of any danger, so or intruder. Yeah. So well, you're saying not so much warning <coughs> danger and stuff, but pointing John on the yeah, because this was like a moral and personal path. yeah dilemma where uh, John's politics were at war with his convictions. <laughs> And Art, I don't uh, think that Art guidance counselor. That ghost, ghost could have like sensed all that. 
then like made a decision and then acted upon it. So I, I just I would have loved some some more some more exploring of that like little uh, communication between John and Ghost. But uh, but on the other hand, now we get to <laughs> make guesses about just how how uh, how much power Ghost has in that relationship. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, we've got a couple more things we wanted to talk about. We're running a little bit low on time, but uh, you want to talk about Sam, or do you want to talk about uh, Amon? Amon's decision to str- being strong and true, or weak and craven, or where do you want to go? Sam. Sam seems a little bit more applicable at this point. Sam is awesome. He Sam all the friends are so dude. cool. All the friends are so cool, but Sam, there's something special about this kid. Well, here's what I like about him. He's, I was talking about being honest with yourself earlier. He knows he's not fit to go chase John down. He knows he'll never be able to hold the guilt of knowing that he left. So he thinks of a different alternative, right? He's not boxed in by, these are the only two choices I've got. He comes up with something better. Go get friends. And part of that has been through John helping to, him come to that kind of self-realization of yeah. what his strengths are and sticking to those strengths and thinking outside the box. And all of that are lessons that John helped him realize. Yeah. And so now he's using them back on John a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, last thing, uh, just a quick note. Oh, we've got a, I think it was Brooke. I think we've got a uh, phrase of the day. And we're expanding upon word of the day, and we're going to go phrase of the day and swing it over to Brooke for this one. Word of the day! Yeah, that's right. Oh, hold on. i got to look it up. Oh, yeah. Yes. Because a word of the day is not going to cover this musical phrase of the day. <laughs> one, whore is being referred to as treasure in Molestown. <laughs> and then the yeah, Black yeah. Mothers going to purchase the services of these prostitutes calling it digging for buried treasure amazing that mm-hmm. or um the lord commander mormont calls his sister um <laughs> who is say it without laughing a hoary old snark <laughs> which i really enjoyed i was like oh i, I, I gotta, to I gotta call my sister that i, I just gotta use wait. that yeah, <laughs> yeah i gotta find a way to use that yeah, i didn't I even look it up hoary means that. like gray doesn't it um, I don't like hoarfrost in that spelling, but I didn't look it up. Yeah. I was just like, ah, now it's perfect the way it is. I don't even need to know what <laughs> it means. I just imagine J.R. Moore would mean like hoary old snark. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So we've Phrase got Jack and, and we've got hoary old snark. Yeah. Digging for buried treasure. I wonder I wonder what tool they use digging for buried treasure. <laughs> Boners. Uh, do, you, do you want me to tell you? <laughs> I thought I, I thought I applied it with the word tool. No? <laughs> All right. Uh, last last little note. If any if science fiction teaches us anything, George G.R. Mormont notes that it's been reported that elk and mammoths are all screaming away in the same direction from something. If science fiction has taught us anything, if you see a bunch of animals running in a specific direction all at the same time, don't stand around, go with them. Mm, yeah. A nice Good survival you know lesson for everyone. Agreed. Yeah, but be careful because if you're a couple Jedi doing it on Naboo, you're going to run into Jar Jar Binks and your life will be ruined forever. Oh, that's a good point. 
Forget what I said. Science fiction has not taught us to run with animals. Well, that smells stinking with. <laughs> Damn you, Lucas. Such an outlier. All right, Catelyn. Words will cut you like valyrian steel through a hand. She can't love Jon Snow, and she's sure to let you know where she stands. A devoted mother who married the brother of a dead fiancé. She's vengeful and hateful, loving and faithful. She's Catelyn, Catelyn Star. So Rob has liberated Riverrun, and Kat finally gets to return to her childhood home, where she apparently hasn't been since Rob was only one. So um, unfortunately, her father, Hoster Tully, is very sick. He's uh, dying, in fact, and had forbidden Edmure, her brother, from telling anyone for fear that Riverrun would be attacked. As it so happens, it didn't matter. Uh, Catelyn visits her father and brags about Rob's win and also gives credit to the Blackfish, which totally fires Hoster up. Apparently, Hoster and the Blackfish, Brendan Tully, his brother, have been feuding for decades, all because Brendan refused to marry a girl named Bethany Redwine or anyone else that Hoster tried to breed him with. And we're not really given an explanation why this Breed was... him with? <laughs> Love it. We're not really given an explanation why this was such a barrier between the brothers, other than uh, Catelyn confirming that Brynden loves bachelorhood and fighting, and Hoster agreeing that uh, the Blackfish was always a warrior. So whatever the case, Hoster knows he's dying and agrees to see Brynden, which will probably be an interesting little reunion if we ever get to witness it. So uh, Rob... In the meantime, calls his council of northern and almost southern lords to talk about sneakly, sneaky little Renly Baratheon announcing his kingship. Rob lets everyone speak and hash out what to do next. And only speaks up in an interesting parallel with Tywin Lannister. Rob also waits and listens to what everybody has to say, but probably with like less of a scowl on his face. He finally speaks up when uh, Sir uh, Jonas Bracken suggests aligning with Renly. And uh, any way you look at it, if they fight against Renly, if they side with him, if they uphold Stannis' claim over Joffrey's, um, the the men of the North are traitors, and they're they're just fighting traitors. And Catelyn, in a in a bid to save Sansa and Arya, points out that this war started to get Ned back. And to protect the Riverlands. And Ned is gone for good. And the Riverlands are in pretty good shape right now. um, If Tywin stays put. Uh, She bravely suggests making peace. And retreating to the north. And no one is having any of this. Rob wants justice. Uh, Brynden foresees more fighting in the future. And questions peace. And uh, Rickard Karsark. Who lost two sons already. Doesn't want the, the north sacrifices to be made in vain. So finally, the the great John Umber breaks up everyone's squabbling by pointing out that he doesn't need to be ruled by false god flower sniffers from the south. The North only bent the knee 300 years ago because they had no choice against the Targaryens and their dragons, and all of the Targaryens and dragons are dead now. He proclaims Rob as king of the North, and everyone else thinks this is just a dandy idea. And the chapter ends with the chant, the king in the North, the king in the North. (laughs) 
you can kind of like hear the music rise. It's very inspiring. And as the camera pans away. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. yeah, which leaves us with, let's count them up. Three Kings. We've got Joffrey, the rightful king in King's Landing. We've got Renly Baratheon, who named himself king. Apparently, you can just do this now. (laughs) Out of nowhere. Married a rich girl and named himself king. And now Rob, the king of the north. And you have Stannis, who kind of wants to be king, uh, but maybe hasn't made the official declaration yet. Right. But we do know from Ned's investigations that... Stannis and John Aaron recognized that um, none of Robert's children would be legitimate heirs and Stannis would be the next in line to the throne. So Stannis knows that he has a claim. And um, as we know from the uh, Tyrion chapter, there are rumors that he is gathering fleets and hiring swords and, um, conferring with i can't remember what it was called shadow binders shadow binders from a from across the sea yeah. so now he's 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 uh he's making his little plan so we've got three definite kings and a possible fourth for the united seven kingdoms so so mm-hmm. i think one of one of the things you said in your summary brook really ties together all of this stuff about naming yourself king and who is the king and all this crap what what we had was a period again if you're interested in the history of all this stuff a world of ice and fire is brilliant go check it out but uh what you have is what you had was these magical beings that made it pretty impossible to fight them effectively and having them dragons i'm referring to having them allowed them to unite the kingdom and as the dragons have gone away from the world and the targaryens who mastered them also not there it's kind of back to Whoever wants to be king and can marshal the most people and take it can be king. That's how Robert got there. And when we say that Stannis is the rightful king, it's only through, you know, his blood relationship to Robert who just took it. So why can't Renly take it? Why can't Joffrey take it? Why can't they any, any of them take it? Without dragons, like the great John said, kind of the rules are being rewritten. Yeah, there's, well, kind of, some might say the rule was, is if you want the kingdom, take it. Yep. Right? That kind of is the rule. And the way to hold on to it is keep having the power to hold on to it and always have more power than the next guy uh, in order to hold on to this kingdom. It's kind of just playing king of the mountain. Yeah, and they're, they're really still in a state of flux. I mean, if, if you look at the timeline, Targaryens ruled for 300 years. And then after Robert's Rebellion, he only held the throne for um, 15 years. Like, it's nothing. It's a blink, right? Right. So... There's still very much the the throne is still up for grabs from the Targaryens. Yeah. The, the Baratheons only held it for just a brief moment. So, yeah, uh, I, I did have a question about this uh, King of the North business. So, it it makes sense to me. Like they they can remember back three hundred years. It's a while, but they can remember back three hundred years to when they ruled themselves and you know whatever they've got stories that they tell each other that remind them of all that. And it makes sense. They've got a, a geographical natural barrier at the neck that kind of separates the North from the South and kind of makes it more of a natural thing. But what surprised me was the River Lord standing up and being like, yes, us too! Oh, King totally, of the North! King totally. of the North! Like, that's yeah. not going to work for them, is it? They don't have a history of ruling themselves or being part of the North. They they actually up-jumped to the level they're at, the, the, the Tullys, 
with the Targaryens coming into power, like their yep. rule only goes back the three hundred years to the Targaryens taking over. Did, did the River Lords have a shot of really even maintaining this? Well, I guess probably their passion probably stems from how much discord has been there since um, Sir Gregor Clegane went riding out and yeah. uh, burning down everything. But otherwise, yeah, I don't know like why their loyalties are so so easily persuaded. I guess I get, I it get really the loyalty. surprised me. I get the loyalty. I get the motivation, mm. but I don't. I I don't. If if I were that one of them, I'd be like, yeah, cool. But if they're just gonna go back up to the north, we're like the buffer between them and the south. That's not gonna work. Logistically, too well. yeah, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. It would make sense to me logistically to side with Renly. Frankly, if yeah. I were in the Riverlands, I would want to side with Renly and the Tyrells. Uh, they're a lot closer. The Riverlands were a hotly contested area always. Yeah. And part of that's because the Lannisters aren't far away from them. Uh, and it seems like having the support of the Reach, that region would be more beneficial than those guys clear up beyond Moat Kaelin. So I agree with you there. It's puzzling. You want to talk about the Blackfish and uh, Hoster? Yeah, what's up with that? So we know we know that lords have the ability to dole out marriages, right? You're going to marry this dude, you're going to marry this chick, you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. Usually with some sort of political intent. Right. And the Red Wines, uh, I believe, from the Reach would be, you know, a reasonably powerful ally. They're a, a very historically significant house. Uh, Ryan Redwine, one of the most famous knights ever. But uh, it just seems like, it seems like a very petty thing to hold a grudge about for this long to me. Like he's your brother. Okay, he turned you down. Get over it. Right? Uh, yeah, on the surface it does. Two things come to mind. One is that maybe Hoster's not used to being told no. And two is something that Brooke brought up earlier is that it's always worse with family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I get the feeling that because the grudge has lasted so long and is so deep that it, it was really a matter of of Hoster being disobeyed. And have you ever just tried to hold out against a family member to see if they'll break? You kind of know they'll never break, and so you just kind of like go on with your life. So it just keeps going, yeah. <laughs> it just keeps no, going. I totally know what you're talking about. Yeah. And remember that um, Brendan emancipated himself from the family. He yeah. left the Tollies. Sounds like like he went to with gets... Yeah, it, aligning himself essentially with House Aaron. But, so there is that connection of Lysa, but um, he took on the Blackfish as kind of a an fu to the to, the fish of. Tully, the sigil of House Tully. Yeah, and that stemmed from him being called the Black Sheep of the Tully family. If you're mm -hmm. called a Black Sheep, I mean you've rebelled more than once. Not just against, like, marrying who your brother wants you to marry. So, obviously, he's got, like, a, a stubborn streak to him. So so you guys think this is more of, more than one incident. It's like it's like escalated incident after incident. Oh, you're gonna do this? I'm gonna do that. Oh, you're gonna do that? I'm gonna do this. And they just kind of keep stacking on top of each other until it gets ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, think so. so. Yeah, I think yeah. I think the marriage refusal was might have been the catalyst. Uh -huh. Yeah, but and you never I've know. I've definitely seen that 
amongst family members. It kind of, I kind of feel like spiral. maybe the blackfish, even if he did want to marry later on, wouldn't have just out of spite. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> totally. Oh, you're a really sweet girl. I love you so much, and your land is but very. But I'm not going to give terrible, my husband the satisfaction. But I just can't I'm do it, brother. Yeah, I'm not going to give my brother the satisfaction. I don't You've care got if I love. Great tracts of land. <laughs> but I can't do it. She's beautiful. She's rich. She's got huge tracts of land. Yeah. I bet you've got great treasure for mining. Uh, so I just want to call out. Uh, you don't have to explore it if you don't want. But I just want to call out the language that Catelyn actually uses about the blackfish when Hoster says, is he wed? And Catelyn says, not wed, nor will he ever. You know that. So it's either what you're talking about, he's, it's just so much spite that he would just never marry, or there's actually a very legitimate reason that he doesn't want to marry someone. I didn't look closely at that. So you're suggesting his sexuality means that saying, he'll never You're saying he's a homosexual. I'm saying he could be. So you're suggesting. I, I'm, I'm yeah. saying the text, well, it's... You're it's saying he's a big gay fish, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's out there. It's not my theory. I certainly read this somewhere else. But this is uh, where I'm disappointed that I've George doesn't heard, like. I don't read the theories. So. George can do this. Can like, you know, vaguely refer to Renly's sexuality, or you know, say that Brendan Blackfish will never marry, never will. You know that. <laughs> There's no women allowed on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can never take a wife. We never really like explores yeah. that side of the sexuality, which I think is like a disservice to what could make these characters um uh even more Yeah, I don't I don't disagree. I, I would not, that about... not that it makes it okay, but we should remember mm-hmm. that this book was written in nineteen ninety six. We've come a long way since then, actually, on, on gay rights and and just general population acceptance. Just talking about it, yeah. Yeah, just even having it in the in public discourse. But uh, I, I'm I'm still with you, Brooke. It's 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 a disappointment that it's just not a you know a reasonable part of these novels, and it's just more. It could have yeah, it's just a, an additional amount of depth. Yeah, you're building your own world. You could build a world and where a cat could be like, Dad, you know he's never going to marry yeah. big gay fish, so yeah. drop it. Yeah. But He's not going to write that. He's he's going to just Leave it. hint and let us make our own assumptions, which again is just it's it's, it's almost like rude. But <laughs> I guess it's his world. It, it's it's his it's his world. So well, look, he can build it however he wants. So it's just disappointing out, that he he didn't make it a little more like um, tolerant. I'll I'll be lazy and ask our listeners to help us out. This is as far as I know the most evidence you ever get that, that this could be the case. It's still, I don't think he ever really spells it out. It's it's conjecture at its worst, perhaps, but just thought I'd mm. bring it up. I think we should uh, let this, I think this might segue rather nicely into the women do not understand these yes. things well thing that went down um, in the council room of uh, um, yeah. River. Yep. Similar <sighs> argument for Brooke. Just go right ahead into it. Well, I mean, it's the same old arguments, and uh, and I'll bring it up again. George didn't have to write that women are so dismissed. He could have written that, hey, Catelyn, that's a good point. Let's explore that, just like we're exploring everybody else's 
arguments and opinions. But what really bugged me is that uh, Marge Mormont is sitting right there, like Morning Star in hand, ready to fight for Rob. In fact, swears herself to him when Great John Armour um, suggests that he become king, and doesn't say anything when yeah yeah it's because she's a hoary old <laughs> when they're snark. all like hoary old snark. When they're all like, women don't understand. It. They're the weaker sex. You could have at least imagined Mage being like, hey. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Like, Which makes me suspicious and a little upset that maybe George is picturing Mage as one of those like um, uh, female misogynists. And, and that um, she thinks, you know, women yeah. hold no value just because they are girly. Which is not true. So, I would like so to try to be as much like a guy as you can. Yeah, which is the opposite of what you should do. <laughs> We've all established that that is not how you become a better person. Well, uh, <laughs> anything over the last few chapters is that she definitely does understand these things. She does understand what's going on. She's a sound tactician. She's she knows how to. Uh, think through things and how to help others think through things it made me groan so audibly when I read that part yeah it's hugely dismissive and aside from her being a woman it's dismissive of of exactly everything that she has brought to the table before this and frankly I don't even think it was so much her argument what she was saying that made people dismiss her and this is to your point it's the fact that she has different uh, plumbing that like it wouldn't have mattered what she'd said, no mm. matter how persuasive it would have been. It's the fact that she's a woman with a vagina, and uh, well, she's going to be. I, I think I think I think the woman thing uh, is is an easy out for them for an option they don't like anyway. What do you mean could, by that? I don't think they like be. her idea, and they use the woman they don't thing like as the easiest idea. way to dismiss it. She would have been dismissed regardless. I don't think they liked the idea, but. What if she? What if she had See, said, "I think you should name quiet. Rob King in the North"? You think they'd have dismissed her then? Possibly. I don't think so. I think they don't like her idea. And saying, "Ah, oh, you're a woman. What do you know?" is the easiest way to get it out because they know everyone will just agree. I think more than more than them dismissing the idea, Rob wouldn't have taken to it. He would have been like, "Oh, mom." Oh, stop. she had proposed it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about her idea to begin with. Does it have merit? What she's asking for? Oh, making peace. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. That's- especially coming from her okay no we need to separate i was gonna say especially coming from her state of mind but you know we need to separate the idea from the state of mind i think and say does it really have merit and i don't think there could have ever been a lasting piece i agree with who was it was it brendan who said now we're just going to be fighting again in a few years yeah. Yes, that is. He is the one who said it. We should probably talk about this in Davos After Dark. Like, what would have happened had they stopped the rebellion right now? But uh, I don't. I don't think that less killing is ever a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think. I think so. Here, here's. I think she lays out the beginning of her argument logically. The reasons we came down here were to protect the Riverlands and to get Ned back. One is done. Although you can argue that it's not really done yet, but one is done. And the other one can't ever happen. He's dead now. And I mourn him just like you do, but what's the point? Nothing's going to bring him back. That part of the mission is over, right? So mm-hmm. if we've protected the Riverlands, let's go back home. Like, let's leave. I I get it, but I don't I don't think it's really a sustainable thing. 
as soon as whoever it is it's gets not. their shit together on the throne, they're going to get punished. They, I think that's what they all see. To. Yeah, they all see uh, that the situation, although those were the original objectives, it's evolved since then. And yeah. now it's become a, a quest to kind of establish a stronger position and wipe yeah. out who they view as a, a long-lasting enemy. They're, they are all suffering a little bit um, in, in the business world, what we call... Uh, inability to see what a sunk what a sunk cost is as a sunk cost, right? Karstark mm-hmm. specifically is so enraged about his kids, you know, understandably so, but he's so enraged at his kids that he can't write that off as a sunk cost. Your kids are gone. There's nothing you can do. Catelyn is doing that. Ned is a sunk cost. He's gone. I can't do anything to get him back. That is outside of the equation now. What we have to do is look forward at, at the decisions that we have ahead of us outside of those things and it's a valuable skill in the business world and these guys don't do it very well and very her, true there's a lot of pride there yeah a ton of pride i agree and her main focus though is getting her girls back yep Absolutely. she she masks it around having peace and everything but she just really wants her girls back right and she even admitted i would give what does she say 10 jamie lannisters for to get Arians sansa back yeah. Yeah. And and Rob recognizes uh, he I mean he doesn't speak up about it but he he's not like, "Yes, I agree. I need to get my sisters back." And Tywin also in that Tyrion chapter recognizes that the Stark girls are are not big chess pieces. Mm-hmm. That Rob would be a fool to trade Jamie for them. All depends on what your goals are anyway. Uh should we should we move uh, and talk talk a little bit about Cat. Do we want? I mean, it's a a rough chapter for her, just dealing with tragedy and loss everywhere she looks. But a very well written chapter for her, I think. So masterfully written. Wow, they managed to encapsulate all those different emotions that are running through her head right now: mourning for her husband, worried about her son, nostalgia at being home after you know, as Brooke said, fourteen, fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Wow, and it's all woven into. To her, and it influences the choices she makes, which I think is taking it to another level. Not only is she feeling these things, but now she's acting on those feelings. It's beautifully done. She, it really brings to light the fact that she's compartmentalizing yes. Ned's death. Like she, This whole chapter could have been just her dwelling on it and mourning. Remember how passionately she mourned for Bran, and yeah. Bran didn't even die. I mean, she like practically starved herself at his bedside. Literally went crazy. You remember her laughing after after mm-hmm. fighting yep. off the cells, uh, the um, cat's paw. So here, though, she is all business. She's feeling things. Yeah. <laughs> She's like arranging reunions between brothers and. Yep. Um, arguing passionately to, to to Rob and his entire council. Um, so she's obviously really isolated herself from her grief. I think I think the I, I love that you've called back to the brand thing. It makes you wonder what the differences are. And to me, the differences between those two situations are in the brand instance, there was still some doubt as to what was going to happen. She actually thought she could influence the outcome by being next to his bed. So she was kind of frozen in this state where she felt like she had to be there all the time. Mm. Ned's, Ned's gone. So her brain and her body and her actions and her soul, if you believe in that sort of thing, 
is free and forced actually to move on and do other things. With Bran, she was like held in the suspended animation state, waiting in doubt, right? Yeah, good point. That's a really good point. Uh, I think also there is a key situation or a key incident that happened between those two, and I think she learned a valuable lesson from that key incident, and that's the whole thing with with Tyrion, everything that went down with Tyrion Lannister. I think that taught her a lot about how to act and um, what kind of emotions to act upon and everything, Um, not only just Tyrion, but everything that went down with Lysa and all that stuff, I think taught her a lot of lessons. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Danny. Danny. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go. Kicking with the sun and stars, call him Cal Drogo. She knows just where she gotta go and won't be tarrying. Look how Westerosa comes to Nerys Targaryen. Oh, I was just, I was mid-do-swig. <laughs> a, good, a good situation to find yourself in. So, Danny however, finds herself in not a great situation right now. They're still off in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and we open kind of as Danny and her tiny, the tiny remnants of Khal Drogo's Kalasar are preparing for Drogo's funeral. So they're out gathering sticks to build a large platform on which to lay Drogo and his earthly treasures. And they're basically going to send him off right, uh, burn him up. Um, they butcher a Poor little stallion uh, in a kind of little heartbreaking moment. They give him, give him an apple and then put an axe through his face. Um, and, and the idea behind sacrificing a stallion along with the dead call is to give the call a mount on which to ride amongst the stars to carry him on to his next life in the sky. Generally, it's the actual call, the actual call's horse. But in this situation, since the horse was already dead, they had to pick another one. Um, we get our first glimpse that Danny, however, has more in mind for this funeral than just simply sending off Drogo right. Uh, Miri, who's still around, is repeatedly warning her that whatever she has planned won't work and that blood is not enough to work magic. Uh, Danny, in a wonderfully dismissive gesture orders Jogo to silence her with his whip, which he does. Jora is flipping out at this point, thinking that Danny is intending to sacrifice herself among the fires of Drogo's uh, pyre. But Danny reassures him that no harm will come to her. Jora reinforces kind of his loyalty to her saying that she now his queen, as she forcefully reminds him has his heart, which never belonged to the series. Danny turns to the remnants of Drogo's Kalasar and kind of proclaims that they are all free, like this big emancipation proclamation. Uh, but if they choose to remain, they would do so as part of her Kalasar. What? <laughs> she names Ago, uh, Jogo, and Ricaro her blood riders. Remember, these guys were her protectors and, and her blood riders as Khaleesi. But now she's pretty much proclaiming herself a call and they are now going to be her blood riders. They hesitate uh, kind of declining altogether uh, to accept owing to her being a woman and it just doesn't happen. So they can't accept her being uh, kind of their leader. Now Jorah, she names the first member of her Queens guard. So she's got blood riders and a Queens guard and he's more than happy to accept this responsibility 
And thus we kind of see a cool situation of Westerosi tradition welding itself to that of the Dothraki. And I'm interested to see how that comes into play even more. Uh, Danny then kind of goes and cleans up herself and Drogo for the funeral, getting ready. She takes a scalding hot bath as she is wont to do. Drogo, after getting cleaned and oiled up, is laid on his platform and anointed with oil. Danny also calls for her dragon eggs to be placed around Drogo on the platform and uh, something else that makes Jorah flip out. Uh, but Danny calms him with his re- with reassurances that, you know, everything's going to be okay and everything. Jorah, of course, wanted to sell the eggs to hopefully buy armies and buy ships and do everything that they needed to accomplish their objective of getting back to Westeros. But finally, Danny pronounces Miri's fate. She thanks Miri for all that she taught her and then has her tied to Drogo's funeral platform to be burned along with him. She reminds Mary that death must pay for life. Mary promises not to scream. And Danny's like, Psh, yeah, you are. <laughs> Jogo, Jogo spies a bright red comet in the darkening sky. And Danny takes that as a sign that they should proceed and that Drogo's ready to ride on into the stars. And the, um, the fire is lit. So the flame almost immediately is overpowering. Uh, we start to hear Miri Mazdur start to chant kind of these songs before she does indeed start screaming. Everyone has to move away from the fire because the heat is so overpowering. But Danny, instead of moving away, actually begins to move closer to it. Uh, hearing the sound of Miri's screaming and the smell of burning flesh, she's walking right into this thing. And although she could feel the heat, she remains unharmed by it as she continues to walk towards it. Um, two sounds towards the end as the fires grow hotter and larger. Two sounds are prominently heard three times. A loud crack accompanied by a roar. This happens three times. We then, however, fast forward to much later after the fire had died. Jorah, to his surprise, walking amongst the ashes, finds a crispy, hairless, yet unharmed Danny amidst the ashes. Uh, naked, too, by the way. Clothes burned off, hair burnt off, but naked. And surrounding her, nursing at her breasts, are three baby dragons. What? Dragon time! Yeah, and uh, the chapter ends with this wonderful line. Oh, I get jittery whenever I I hear it. For the first time in hundreds of years, the night came alive with the music of dragons. Awesome! Usually, Usually I say end of chapter. Here I take great pleasure in saying end of book. Oh! What? Yeah. Can you imagine reading this back in 1996 or whatever? Yes. No other books are out yet. Yes. And you have to wait. Did you do this? Did you? No. Brooke, were you early enough along that you had to wait no, for Clash of Kings? I didn't start reading until about 2003. Yeah. So, but I remember, I, I remember only having the books. That was it. I mean, like, this is the most amazing ending ever. Uh-huh. 
Um, but now, now I, I will admit that my my vision is kind of tainted by the the show, which has a lot like a much more romantic ending uh, with the Danny. She still has hair. She still looks yes. great. Her makeup is impeccable. <laughs> yeah, her eyes look fantastic. Yeah, and there's no reptiles <laughs> on nipples. No. It, it reminds me of of uh, the shittiest X-Men film, and anyone that's a true fan knows which one I'm referring to. Uh, uh, X-Men 3? Yes, which in which Wolverine walks, difficult, in, in a difficult manner, walks, trudges, toward Jean Grey, who's basically throwing her telekinesis powers directly at him, tearing the world apart around him. His skin is falling off. Everything is peeling off of him. But if you look at the part of his clothing that covers his junk, that maintains itself. Or the Hulk's tiny purple shorts! (laughs) Right. There's extra adamantium there. And in in this case, uh, Danny's hair is Hugh Jackman's junk. Wait, what? Mm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. burned off all the clothes but the hair's there and looking great yeah. but, but listen it's still remarkable that she did not burn in that fire yeah what's going on there that huh? is that is proof positive that targaryens are magic yeah absolutely right. at, at least at least some of them right maybe all we don't know but how how about jorah in his first official act as a queen's guard uh letting his queen walk directly into a fire <sighs> Yeah, I'll I'll take. He learned his lesson. Dismiss him faster than Barristan Selmy for five hundred, Alex. <laughs> well, yeah, it was all confusing what was going on. He did yell after her, but he didn't, and he had the ability to. He didn't physically restrain her, which I would say is after you just swore yourself to her safety, a failure. Well, I wonder, though, if he's starting to second-guess his own motives and just trying to trust Danny a little bit. Remember, he feels immense guilt at the uh, at taking her into the tent, despite her protestations. So maybe he's just trying to trust her a little bit. But I don't know. He seems so taken with her at this point that it seems like he wouldn't even be able to stop himself, that he'd be running after her to save her. So the question to me is, what is it with this fire? Um you mentioned that she didn't she didn't burn up in the fire. Is it that she wouldn't have burnt up in any fire, or was there something special about this particular fire yeah. that made that made it? Uh, you've got a lot of so, elements here, like like right. so. You've got the stallion and Drogo already dead. So I don't know if he'd have that much influence on this magic mm-hmm. fire. But you also have Mary Ma's door burning alive in it very much screaming and melting. So uh, is it because the dragons were in the fire because she didn't get harmed? Is it because d- did the dragons hatch because she lit the fire? Like what, what? Yeah. Where, where's the chicken? Where's the egg on this one? Right. Yeah. She mentions that the brazier that she had uh, initially tried to put the dragon eggs in a few chapters back was not hot enough quote unquote. Um, and does that mean adding to your list of questions? Does that mean that it wasn't hot enough in terms of just temperature? Like it mm. needed to be 30 degrees hotter than it was, or is it what's actually in that fire? Right. You know, yeah. in terms of Mary Mazdur being in there. Um, 
And could it have been any person that was alive or was there something special about Miriam Azdur and the part that she'd had to play in Danny's life up to this point? Did that have something to do with it? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. A big theme I've got, and like... I've got, some, I've got some theories. All right. I think Miriam Azdur and the magic and all of it is a hoax. Not, right. not involved in any of it. The miscarriage, the baby with the wings, none of it. And part part of this theory is, again, harking back to World of Ice and Fire, I read about a previous Targaryen ruler, uh, Magor the Cruel, who had a wife, two of them actually, that had disfigured children, one of them with little wings. And mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think, I think Targaryens are magic. I think they're linked to these dragons, and they've got some sort of dragon in their blood, and that miscarriage was going to happen regardless. That baby was going to be malformed regardless. And it didn't have anything to do with Mary. We talked about, we postulated a tiny bit about that last time of is Mary acting more as kind of a messenger of sorts or how much is she actually playing into everything that's happened to Danny? Yeah. But I think there's no question that there's something different about Targaryens and that, that same book talks about, you know, there's rumors that at some point dragons and uh, not Targaryens necessarily, but uh, people of old Valyria got together. Well, they'd the have baby. to for the dragons to be nourished by human breast milk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there has to be some sort of like genetic connection there. Sure. <laughs> Says my science. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, my kid was watching the fox and the hound the other day and widow tweed nourishes the fox todd with cow's milk i don't know maybe dragon could just drink from human milk Mm, why do you always want to shit Mm. on my magical theories (laughs) (laughs) well well, remember um this i was like you ever have those thoughts i have them all the time where i'm like why am i even thinking about this uh but (laughs) At first, I thought it was super gratuitous how George describes when she's walking towards the flames that all of a sudden her breasts start leaking milk. You know, I'm like, what? Why did you have to put that in there? Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, when when women are breastfeeding and stuff, it depends on the woman. And of course, you know, and everything. But there's some women that they hear their baby cry. Yes. And they start leaking a little bit. Right. And I wonder if that's part of what's going on here is is George pointing out that she truly is kind of the mother of these dragons that as she's approaching them and as they're hatching and everything, her body's actually reacting to that. Uh, the fact that she's going to be kind of their mommy. So Good point. I forgot about that. I was so caught up in the gratuitous uh, perfuming of her genitalia. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about <laughs> that, I, that one I missed that one. I'm sorry. I can't let it slide. I, I don't understand this. It's not the first time in the text that he's mentioned it. But what is what does that do? I can't imagine that that does anything. I imagine it, that that might give you some sort of infection. Like, it, don't be doing that. Very well could, depending on what the perfume is made of. <laughs> but, I mean, just... Is it ceremonial? I, uh, I don't know. Is it just germ being gratuitous? It could be. I think it is. Yeah. I think sexualizing teenagers is where Grimm's at at this point in the books. Man. Job well done. I just couldn't let it go this time. Like, what purpose does that serve? That's a perfectly good, a waste of perfectly good perfume. Yeah. I don't know. So, here's here's, uh, 
another thing about about the magic and and you know we we talked about the fire and is there something special about the fire and I'm kind of dismissing it because partially because of what I read in in, in a world lies in fire but also because of the line that they say in this chapter they were not given to me to sell it implies something to me that Im- it implies that I don't know whether Illyrio knew or whatever maybe he did maybe he didn't but there's some sort of fate implied at least that these dragons were meant to hatch and there's there's no there's no catalyst other than Danny's magic and these things are going to hatch for her that I think needs to happen for the fire to be anything special and mm-hmm. and I point back also to the other times where she's felt comfort comforted by the by the eggs felt them being warm like these things were going to hatch regardless I think she just had to figure out you know kind of the right the right the right temperature maybe or maybe it was just a matter of time i don't know maybe but if... but at one point she didn't feel so attached to them at one point she was just going to give them to viseries uh viseries yep. pardon me yep. um uh, if he wanted them right yep. but i guess he'd probably be a special case her relationship kind of develops with them yep. and what's interesting to me about it is that she figures it out and call this magic, call this intuition, call it whatever you will. But she figures it all out by herself. Like she didn't discover some secret Targaryen text that taught her about this stuff. Um, but yeah, Brooke, she starts out with them very much just being gifts and she's willing to give them to her brother to calm him down or whatever. And Scott, you kind of touched on her, his evolu- her evolution with the eggs. But by the end, going into this, everyone else around her is like, WTF are you doing, Danny? About questioning every decision almost that she's making. What are you doing? And she proceeds like with this quiet confidence. And maybe this is the first time we've really seen her with this quiet confidence that she knows exactly what she's doing. She's gonna do it. And but to me, it's like the amazing thing is how did she figure it out? She came to the conclusion somehow by herself with no catalyst for learning or anything like that. It's like, so again, you call it intuition call it magic call it what you will but somehow she figured this out mm. I, I think and that's catalyst, really amazing i think the catalysts were the dreams in her last chapter i think that told hmm. her she is the dragon yes the, but again those seem very high level to me oh yeah they are i, I think the it whole... just instilled in her the confidence that you're talking about i don't it, it sure. certainly wasn't like a road map <laughs> mm-hmm. you know like do this do that but i think it gave the lego booklet and, of instructions yeah yeah it's it's almost like uh, you know you hear accounts of, of people um, you know being spoken to you know through their god and stuff like it's pretty rare that you get you know a set of written instructions it's 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 usually described like you get a feeling that you should act in a certain way right you get you get pushed in a certain direction your 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 mind is oscillating between two thoughts and you get pushed in a certain way right it's it's very rarely like this is exactly what you do yeah in some cases. Say the Bible's full of <laughs> him telling this is exactly what you do. Um, but you're very right about a lot of times things do start with intuition and feelings. It's just funny that Danny had no prior knowledge of any of this, uh, but somehow she was able to, to develop this this action of the way she was going to do it. Yeah, it, it, you're it right. It, being, it, almost, it almost seems like blind luck. It's like, yeah. you're just going to throw them in the fire, huh? All right. Mm-hmm. Why don't you try hitting them with a hammer? Like, <laughs> you know, 
like where did you get the idea it's a good it's a good point sitting on him waiting for him to hatch didn't yeah. we talk about that in a past episode yeah <laughs> at one point also we just have to give ourselves over to this is all just one big this is what the book is about magic right <laughs> dragons yeah. Yeah. Fantasy. magic yeah. yeah fantasy and so <laughs> at some point we have to stop overanalyzing all right. I know true. it's crazy, and without our overanalytic tendencies, we wouldn't have this podcast. But we have to limit ourselves at some point. Yeah. Well, I I would, in my defense, I would say what I started with is Targaryens are fucking magic. So. Yeah, and then you argue yourself out of it. No, I still believe it. I I, I still believe it. Okay. I think I argued him out of it. No, the Targaryens are certainly there's certainly magical qualities there. Yeah, all I said was I, yeah. I don't think I don't think the fire was special. I don't think the blood was special or, or any magic in that way. I just think Targaryens are magic themselves and made this happen. Okay. Uh, should we move on? Yes, there's certainly more to it than just starting a big fire. Yeah. Uh, Davos after dark. Let's do it. Uh, so yeah. So I, as I alluded to in the in the preamble of tonight's cast, there won't be uh, a next episode that dives directly into chapters. Uh, there will be two released episodes, one a uh, Davos After Dark Spectacular uh, and one a uh, Where Are They Now character sweep uh, with some fun trivia uh, engaged. So uh, look for those uh, coming next after this and uh, just be prepared for some fun. And now let's dive into Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. So there's a lot. Let's let's just start with the uh, the foreshadowing, the nice bit of foreshadowing we get on having to be an utter ass to trade Jamie Lannister's life for two girls. <laughs> How big of an ass do you have to be to trade Jamie Lannister for nothing? Because that's how big of an ass Catelyn turns out to be on this point, at least. Yeah, Marbrand's the prophet here, but uh, yeah, reading back on it, it's one of those moments that makes you smile a little bit, yes. right? <laughs> Thinking that. Not too long. That exact thing is going to happen. Yeah. At just on the promise, she makes like, how does it go down? That she pro- she makes Jamie like say you take care of the girls or free the girls when you get back or something like that. In her defense, I think Jamie was going to do it. Oh, that's why Jamie Lannister is one of my favorite characters, along In, with Old Bronn. Against her defense, since I'll argue both sides. I don't think he was going to do it until he learned a little bit more about himself on the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his arc is fantastic. I love it. How about how about also, uh, we, we hear about, uh, in, in one of the chapters, about Varys kind of telling Tywin what Stannis is up to. And uh-huh. <laughs> you're led to believe, like, oh, I don't know how much of it's true or whatever. And it's actually all It is all such a true. throwaway line. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very much throwaway. <laughs> you can actually... go down the list and just check it off. Yeah. yeah. Check. Yep, check. she's doing this check. and this and this and this. And my question to you guys is why? Why is Varys so honest with Tywin about it? Is he, what's he doing? Well, we know that Varys wants to sow discord um, yeah. in hopes of of getting what we, what ends up being getting Targaryens back in power for whatever reason. And so... He's just, I think he's just doing whatever he can. He does he does big jabs, he does little jabs, but he's always jabbing a little bit here and there. I wonder if he was worried at this point about um, 
Melisander. I wonder if he knew like how much trouble she would be. Oh. Like if like if he had some ex- previous experience with Asinians. Like like mm. you mean he's like oh shit this is a real threat. Yeah. I need to actually get them moving against this one. Yeah. Not I'm not just playing around here. Like I actually want them to go take care of this threat because it upsets my entire goal. Yeah. At this point, if if I wanted something done, I'd probably tell Tywin Lannister. Dude, get shit done. But, uh... but would Varys know that Tywin's not going to take that seriously? Mm, hard to at, say, especially because he drops it at a rough time too. He knows that Tywin's this is like you've got to know when to approach Tywin with things, just like with anybody. You got to know when the right things to bring things, right time to bring things up are. Mm-hmm. When Tywin's in the crap storm that he's in right now, um, this probably isn't the time to bring up shadow binders from a shy with Stannis and have Tywin really take it seriously. Maybe he told him to make Tywin feel like he was on the defensive. Like, hey, you know, Renly's amassing an army and you got uh, Stark over there to your west and uh, can't get back home. And Oh, also, uh, Stannis is in your rear view. So uh, check that out. Just remember this guy. Yeah, like maybe he's just actually trying to scare him and, and keep him in check. It's just one of those times where, where we know for a fact that Varys has unequivocally told the truth. And he does that so rarely, it seems. Like, with such blatant honesty, it's almost like I second-guess it because it's so honest, right? Or maybe we could just say that Varys isn't sure about it. Maybe he didn't even know. Maybe it is just he's just passing along hearsay that he'd heard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe. All yeah, right. it is described as rumors. Anyways. Uh, from Ice to Fire. Which chapter was that in? It was in the Danny chapter. They're talking about um, the direction that they're laying the wood out and stuff. Oh yeah. And they said that they laid they laid Drogo ice to fire or something like that. I don't right. They're talking about how they're remember. laying out the pyre and how they're laying out the body and the wood and everything. Yeah. Uh, third level dried leaves and twigs. They laid them north to south from ice to fire. Piled them high with soft cushions and sleeping silks. Yeah. So it could just be one of those throwaway lines, but I thought. I, it's just one of those you go song of ice and fire ice and fire oh cool every time someone mentions the game of thrones i get excited too right they said the name of the book <laughs> and that's from Family even when Guy. it's afraid that's saying it yeah but uh from ice to fire it could be very simple as in we know that the south is quite hot yeah. the north is quite cold or it could it could be something deeper something more ancient that the dothraki have 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 kept in their traditions, but is that the origins of sort of grown misty. I think this is probably me reaching, but I, I found the ice and fire in that chapter in that very chapter. And then in the end of the chapter, they talk about the music of dragons, which could be the song of, of dragons. You have the song of ice and fire, mm. but oh, like that the could, song of ice and fire came out of that pyre. Right. The music of the dragons was the song. Um, that came out of that fire with things laden from ice to fire. So it, that could be reaching big time, but it is that's what we do at Davos that. After I mean, Dark is we, is we talk about that stuff. Yeah, he could have just said north to south, but he instead did? he said north to south, comma, ice to fire. Huh. Uh, was it a smart move to ride out and force beyond the wall? I would say yes, it's a smart move. It's not a smart move for the Lord Commander to take them. <laughs> <laughs> Dummy. 
so, so and I think it even if they hadn't even even they hadn't mutinied, anything could have happened to him. He's an older guy. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of dangers. I didn't see the point in taking so many soldiers. Yes. Well, here's here's it, the reason because they'd sent raiding parties and searching parties because they'd sent smaller parties out and they keep disappearing. Yeah, right. <laughs> but right. I, I Taking, just don't know what they're. I don't really get what they're trying to accomplish. Yes, it's, they said they wanted to find out what happened to. He wanted to discover Benjamin's fate. Right. Right. He points that out specifically. But why do you need like three hundred guys to do that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've sent out small parties, so send out fifty. Or a hundred, right. maybe. Even. Yeah, let's go in some increments. Yeah, <laughs> but but three hundred and like because because three hundred, while it's a big force, it's not a big enough force to do any damage up there, right? Yes. If if you actually get caught with your pants down and get attacked by this wildling army that you're hearing is amassing, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. So like, stay at the wall, figure some things out. I almost feel like they yeah. should have set up some like beacon lights, like in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, one of the best parts of that film. I love that part. It just makes sense, right? You could string out a party that large because their biggest issue is lack of communication. People like go out and they disappear and they never hear from them again. Yeah. Well, establish some sort of line of communication. That's a good idea. Thanks, they guys. Themselves. I yeah. should probably be Lord Commander. You should have. Well, because there's Mormont opening. is. is yeah. <laughs> no, there's right not. Now there is. No, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Mormont is neglecting the wall in doing so, right? Yeah. He says he's going on the offensive, but he's leaving the wall, you know, that's already undermanned as it is. And it's basically being peopled by a skeleton crew at this point. Um, what are you doing, man? So, uh, what did it accomplish? Well, in the end, they, they learned a lot about fighting others and, and whites and stuff. Uh, they were able to discover the obsidian, um, and how that worked, we had oh, Sam the Slayer emerge. But... That obsidian, though, isn't the, the cache that they find depressingly small when you find out what it's good for? Oh, it, it does end up not uh, having a... Well, it, you know, it's, it would it's just fight a small... It's like 12 blades and a handful of arrowheads. It's like, that's not going to help. We uh-huh. need, like, a whole outfit here, right? Maybe this is a discussion better saved for Davos After Dark when we get into this in A Storm of Swords or Clash of Kings or whenever it happens. But I found it interesting that people actually made it back to the wall when they were attacked by the Whites and later the Others. Like with how proficient the Others are at killing, it seems like they could have completely, if they'd wanted to, wiped out everyone in the Night's Watch. I agree. Instead, they only seemed to take out the stragglers, the guys that fell behind, almost as if they were trying to let some of them get back to the wall. Or they have another weakness that we don't know about. Yep. Yeah, Maybe. I, uh, one of the things that I thought was, well, and I, I, you know, I, I think they're not active during the day, right? I think I've said that on this cast before. But they describe in the book that they're 50 yards behind me. They're 50 yards behind me. And like, it, do, it, it very much gives a sense of urgency to the march march home. But you're like, I get the sense that they could move 50 yards a lot faster than Fat Sam. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, they That's really should be able to swoop in and kill all these people whenever they want, if they're really only that far yeah. behind. Yeah. So I agree with you, I guess is what I'm saying. Unless they yeah. have a weakness like what Brooke's saying. Maybe they do. It is interesting, for sure, because they don't... Because typically, in warfare, you wouldn't kill off all your enemies because you want to use them as slaves or 
leverage or something else, right? Yeah. But mm -hmm. the or the others don't need them because they they have the the whites, yeah. presumably, right? As for whatever they need, unless they do need living humans for something. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah, it yeah. would be really great. There's a but Craster's you, babies. You did. <laughs> You did point out a very interesting pattern that there's there's like a missing piece that we haven't been given yet. Good job, Matt. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm getting kind of late. Do you want to uh, throw your little additional evidence onto uh, Team John there, Matt? It's not really additional evidence. I'm just adding an additional member. I think Ghost running off as he was going to tell somebody, communicate with Mormont's Raven or something like that. When J.R. was like, when J.R. was like, we knew you wouldn't go. Nah, he's lying a little bit. He didn't know anything until Ghost told the Raven, which came back and told Mormont. And then Mormont's like, yeah, I knew all along. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. I think, I think that's where Ghost went. I think Ghost was out communicating with someone else on Team John. Hmm. Never thought about that. I totally gave Mormont and Amon all the credit for predicting <laughs> what a young boy would do. Yeah, I'm I'm still giving him the credit. I don't think I'm going to follow you down that rabbit hole, Matt. Uh, I'm not asking you to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not asking you to. I have, In fact, I would probably encourage you not to follow me down this down rabbit hole. Down into madness? <laughs> when did you exchange reason for madness? Tell me. When did Saruman the Wise abandon reason for madness? All right. Uh, I appreciate that you guys, like, keenly look into messages within the ravens squawking so often. But honestly, I don't know. I think it's just a smart bird. Okay. Just a... You are no, no. perfectly within your right to believe that. <laughs> You're wrong, but you're within your right to believe that. <laughs> I, I, I like... As as it as it became part of Matt's theory that the that the raven might be involved, I just like to document what the bird says just to see if there are patterns or anything. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. It's yeah, it's it's maybe a little yeah. bit. Uh, you know that corn is definitely going to turn the tide on this war. But I, how? I thought. The oh, fact... once I once I figure out what corn means, <laughs> my life will be complete. I could die the next day once I know what corn means. My gosh, means he's hungry, Matt. Uh, <laughs> you know, he says Benjen. He can say Benjen. That's a really smart bird. Or he's just parroting words that he's heard. Whatever. Yes. <laughs> the shatterer of Matt's dreams. Yeah, to quote Brooke, why do you want to shit on all our magical theories? There's a lot of side shitting going on in this episode. <laughs> yeah. No, but there is a reason I haven't sat down and really, like, written out and essayed this theory out because i know deep down that i probably don't have enough material to write something reasoned and educated on it but i'm gonna stick with it i'll stick with you i do Thanks. love the ravens all right all right uh should we sign off thank you again everyone for listening to us uh through this episode and through all the episodes of game of thrones once again i commend you on swallowing <laughs> this entire book and can't wait to join you in swallowing a cock as well yes good job brooke <laughs> goodness gracious yes i echo brooks brooks thanks um it's been a lot of fun um and 
I'm just going to go with, with one of my favorite Bob lines that I think is ap- applicable to just about anything in life by Bob. I mean, Bob Dylan, just don't think twice. It's all right. Dude, I thought you were silent, Bob. That's <laughs> like, he I only should. says like five things in all the movies combined. No, Bob Dylan has a lot more to say. Oh, don't think it. twice. It's all right. It's a beautiful quote. I also pictured a different Bob. As in, and the first Bob that came to my head was the Bobcats from the Oatmeal comics. What? <laughs> I will link you guys. We'll link all our listeners. They are amazing. All right. Well, my, my sign off quote is uh, in, in deference to the coming, the coming actions of the Night's Watch Beyond the Wall. Are you frightened? Yes. Not nearly frightened enough. I know what hunts you. Chilling. With that, good night. Good night, folks. Night. But I wish there was something you would do or say to try and make me change my mind and stay. We never did too much talking anyway. But don't think twice, it's all right.